Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Carol M. Cusack. Carol is a professor of religious studies at the University of Sydney. She was originally trained as a medievalist, and her research now focuses primarily on contemporary religious trends and Western esotericism. She has written books on both anime, religion, and spirituality, as well as fiction, invention, and hyperreality from popular culture to religion. Hope you enjoy our conversation today. Hi, Carol. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this Open Div Summit. Big fan of your work and some of the writing you've done on inventive religions and also on, on pilgrimage and a few other topics. But I'm curious, you know, today, wanting to focus on inventive religions, for people who are unfamiliar with your work, how would you explain the concept of inventive religions and, and how it came about? I used to work a lot in new religious movements. Before I worked in new religious movements, I was a medievalist, but that's kind of irrelevant to our discussion today. But I started working in new religious movements in the middle 90s, and I'd studied a little bit as an undergraduate in that area, and I had some idea about how new religions form and about theories about charismatic leaders and that kind of stuff. But I found myself probably around about 2000 or a year or two later, 2002, thinking that there were phenomena that nobody really studied and that didn't fit the model of a charismatic leader has a revelation and then attracts a following and, and, you know, the sort of model that we looked at from things as disparate as the Unification Church and the International Society for Krishna Consciousness and that some people used to kind of retroject and say, oh, well, this is what it must have been like when, say, Buddha or Jesus started out. They had this little group of followers and then they kind of institutionalized and the charisma receded into the background and the founder was given this particular kind of idealized status. And I was thinking, but there are other groups that don't really do that. And I was pushed in the direction of what I later called invented religions by several students that I had in classes that I thought were really interesting. And also particularly in an interest in the idea of people writing scriptures right now and what would they put into a scripture that was written, say, in 2005 or something like that. And there was another really important driver, which is that I think everybody in religious studies has a liking for the idea of working on stuff that they are personally interested in. Now, I was not a member or affiliated with any of the invented religions, but I found them tremendously interesting from a kind of culture jamming perspective for years. And so I was thinking, if I wanted to write something about Discordianism and the Church of All Worlds and the Church of the Subgenius, and maybe Jediism, which by 2005 had been mentioned in a couple of academic publications because it started with the census campaign of 2001, I was thinking, well, how could I actually put that into an academic framework? You know, if you want to publish something, you can't just say, hey, this is a lot of really interesting material and I think other people should read it. You usually have to frame it in a way that the discipline will recognise what you're doing and see that even though the material strikes them as outlandish or, or even perhaps unworthy of this kind of study, that nevertheless you've been able to make some kind of theoretical point using it. And I realised that one of the things that the group of religions that I called invented did was that they explicitly rejected the idea that you had to link your religion to an ancient tradition and claim that it came from some kind of supernatural or otherworldly revelation and that it was in some sense entirely serious. Most of the religions I was interested in said, well, actually, um, we made it up. Uh, We think it works. We think it's really helpful. And, you know, in the case of the Church of All Worlds, it was made up in the year that I was born. So it's 58 years old and, you know, going, going strong. And the Discordians are five years older than that. 
And so it's not like there's some kind of flash in the pan that they are going to disappear overnight. There were some things about these particular groups that meant that people wanted to keep them going, that meant that they were not stuck in the sense that when the first generation died, there was nothing following on, that people kept picking up these ideas and finding them fascinating. So the first really important thing is that an invented religion is a religion where the founders or the followers stand up quite openly and say, oh no, you know, X made this up in 1957 in a bowling alley in California. The scriptures were written or they were, in the case of the Church of All Worlds, a novel that was pre-existing and the group decided it was really good and should be something that we based our lives on. And so they don't do the legitimation work that a lot of religions do. And it's funny, actually, because now that doesn't seem very controversial. But when I started writing my book, which I finished the manuscript in 2009 and published it in 2010, most Wiccans, for example, despite the you know, strenuous efforts of scholars were still using, you know, the narrative of this is a continuation of the pre-Christian religion of Europe and, you know, the burning times and the um, execution of witches in the 16th and 17th century is all real. And, you know, a lot of scholars were kind of shaking their heads and saying, haven't they read Norman Cohen? Don't they actually know that there really weren't any witches and even the numbers that were killed were kind of nowhere near that large? And it was you know, more to do with heresy and sociological problems. And, of course, the point was that nowadays, you know, any intelligent, well-informed Wiccan or pagan generally will tell you, oh, yeah, it's right, it's not ancient, it's a modern thing. And, you know, (laughs) so there's been a big shift. But when I was saying this, I couldn't use something like modern paganism in a general sense, as an example, because it was still clinging to a legitimation narrative that isn't important anymore. Right, right. Interesting. You know, and I'm curious, so you mentioned Church of All Worlds, and I know you've studied them extensively. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, for people who are, are again, newer to this kind of German field, what did it actually look like for them to instantiate uh, the novel Stranger in a Strange Land into a religion, and kind of what are the, how have those practices continued to this day for the people who ascribe to to membership? Okay. Well, the Church of All Worlds is probably the least challenging of the movements in the book that I wrote because it's the one that looks most like, you know, a real-world church. Um, In 1962, two students, Tim Zell and Lance Christie, who were very close friends and who were studying psychology, decided that they read Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert A. Heinlein's novel about a human messiah brought up on Mars who preaches a gospel of free love and peace and, you know, interspecies cooperation. They'd read that book over their break and in April of 1962, they were talking with their girlfriends and some of their other friends and decided that, you know, the religions that they'd been brought up in didn't satisfy anymore, that they they wanted some kind of principles that would mesh with what they saw they were learning in their psychology studies and also in the values that they wanted to live by in their lives. And they were very countercultural, even though 62 is early to talk about that. They both believed in sexual freedom and non-traditional family structures and all sorts of things. And they saw in Heinlein's novel a fictional picture of the kind of world they wanted to live in. So they got together with this group of people and they created a ritual. They shared water, which is a ritual that's in the novel because Mars is said to be, you know, this dry, hot planet and water is really precious and so the most important thing you can share is water with someone that you're very close to Mm. and they began using the language of the novel so for example there's this word that Heinlein uses called which is grok g-r-o-k and it means like to understand deeply at the most profound level what's going on and so if you grok somebody you get them in a really deep way and they started working out what they could 
extract from the novel. And they took it quite seriously. I mean, Tim Zell started writing services, you know, so they would have a weekly service and everybody was reading and studying the book. And what happened was that it split a little bit and between 62 and 67, there's like a, a, a division of functions and Lance Christie, who went on to become an environmental activist, uh, he died, I think in 2010, actually. He headed up a, a brotherhood called ATL, A-T-L, which sounded vaguely kind of um, Aztec or Mayan, which was supposedly the secular arm of the religion, which was to work towards environmental protection and a sustainable lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. And Tim Zell, who later took the name Oberon Zell Ravenheart, and who's still alive and, and quite an inspiring man, he became head of the religious branch of the group. And In 1967, that's a really important year, and it links into what I said just a few minutes ago about paganism. He met one of the great kind of pioneering pagan leaders in America, Frederick McLaren Adams, Uh, and Fred Adams founded a group called, I think, the Fellowship of the Hesperides, and then in 1967, he founded another group called Ferraferia, which still kind of exists. And Zell realised that the five rituals that they the four rituals that they had from Stranger in a Strange Land could be very easily welded to a form of paganism that was goddess-focused because they'd already kind of decided that the earth was sort of divine and they wanted to worship the divine feminine, not merely the the masculine Judeo-Christian type idea about divinity. And so through meeting and, and participating with Fred Adams and also getting initiation into a number of pagan groups, Zell kind of began integrating broad pagan rituals into CAW and now they fully use the Wheel of the Year, the kind of eight pagan festivals and and that kind of thing. And then, of course, it transformed a little bit again in the early 70s when Zell had this massive uh, vision that he called Theogenesis, which was about the fact that the goddess is most definitely the earth and human beings are part of this vast interconnected kind of web of all living things and sort of in in a Teilhard de Chardin kind of way that human beings constitute the newosphere and the consciousness of the planet. And so I guess Church Four Worlds, it organised pretty early. It registered itself as a religion. Well, Zell registered it as a religion in 1967 it had a structure. Members were organised into groups called nests. Rituals had been scripted and drawn from the earliest possible days. Paganism was fairly seamlessly and successfully integrated. Almost all the people who wanted to be part of it were heavily countercultural. The early years are spent, you know, doing the circuit of the fan cons and the sci-fi cons and right. the Renaissance fairs and the people who were members of organisations like the Society for Creative Anachronism and, you know, those sorts of people all flocked to this kind of religious expression. And it's still very strong in Anglophone countries and in a few European countries. There are nests in Germany and I think also the Netherlands, but it's primarily been a Britain, Australia, America, Canada, New Zealand, a little bit sort of operation shall we say right right interesting yeah it definitely sounds like they they developed a real institution that really i guess could be seen as uh, as quite similar to some of the traditional um religions i'm curious you know you mentioned legitimation is one of the things that these invented religions first began to challenge i'm curious what other concepts of religion or ideas uh, maybe that were traditionally held about religion have kind of been challenged by the invented religions and maybe in particular some of the organizations that look a little bit less like a traditional religion than maybe uh, Church of All Worlds? Well, maybe uh, a good group to consider there is Discordianism, which was also founded by two male college students in 1957 in East Whittier, California. Greg Hill and Kerry Thornley had a very different sort of attitude to Zell and Christie. They didn't start with a book, for one thing. They used to have these all-night drinking sessions in bowling alleys with their friends and they basically came up with the 
an idea which we would now call a kind of culture jam or culture hack, which was to invent a religion that didn't look a lot like religions that kind of inverted and parodied and kind of subjected traditional religion to a, a, a pretty thorough, you know, kicking. And they came up with the idea of worshipping the Greek goddess Eris, the goddess of chaos, who's called Discordia in Latin. And even though, in fact, they did organise in all sorts of ways, you know, like Discordians are organised into communities called cabals and there is a scripture which Greg Hill and Kerry Thornley, with some help from their friends, wrote initially, I think, in 1965, so eight years after the religion began. It's called Principia Discordia. Um, it's been through a large number of different redactions and it's now quite uh, readily available online and you know, everywhere and it's been repackaged and it's something of a kind of subcultural classic. And they moved in a totally different sort of direction. They didn't embrace kind of environmentalism and the goddess in that positive kind of hippy-dippy way that you find in Church of All Worlds. They went down the, the, the wormhole of conspiracy theories and integrated things like Lovecraft's Elder Gods mythos and Kerry Thornley in particular became obsessed with the Kennedy assassination and mm. there was a, a great deal of kind of paranoid anxiety. Thornley had actually been in the military and had known Lee Harvey Oswald, so he was part mm. of the investigation to a certain extent. So what sort of things did they challenge? Well, Discordianism is really funny. It is parodic. Its moments of kind of revelation are always presented in a kind of ridiculous way, like the revelation that they should all follow the goddess Eris apparently was when a gorilla materialised in front of them in the bowling alley and told them that this was what they were going to go out and do. They took a phenomenal amount of drugs and some common interests with CAW kind of emerged like Thornley was interested in nudism and free love and various other sorts of things and he and his wife Carla I think her name was were living in LA in kind of 1967 and he and Zell in Church for Worlds were two of the people first to put forward the word pagan as a kind of self-identifier because up to that date, you know, there were people who were Wiccans and people who followed other kinds, but they didn't use pagan capital P as something that they really felt was not an insult. I mean, that was a turn up for the books because pagan used to be kind of term of derision, you know, that kind of old religion that was only uh, followed by ignorant illiterate people and you know the great wisdom of monotheism obliterated it etc and they said no you know we we want to go back to the pagan stuff that was really good but the other thing that they challenged which I think is probably the biggest one is the idea that just because you make something up doesn't mean that it isn't true so in the mid-70s Margot Adler was moving around America preparing a book which was going to be called Drawing Down the Moon, which was an interview with polytheists and pagans and Wiccans and witches and people who were practising various forms of alternative religion around the States. And she interviewed Greg Hill, the co-founder of Discordianism. She didn't speak to Thornley, but Hill conveyed some of Thornley's recent sentiments to her. And Thornley says with, with no irony with absolute seriousness what people don't realize is that if you invest if you focus on a goddess like Eris with the kind of passion that traditionally religious people focus on Yahweh it'll take you as he put it on exactly the same trip you know it's very kind of kind of drug-infused kind of language And then he says the last time he saw Thornley they were discussing Eris as a mistress and what a tyrannical, difficult goddess she was to serve because of her absolute subverting of order and an advocation of of chaos. And Thornley, who was a man of what we might describe as prodigious sexual appetites, actually said to Hill, you know, man, if I'd have known all of this was going to come true, I'd have chosen Venus. 
you know, he would have gone for the goddess of love and sex, not the goddess of chaos and mind fuckery. Right, you know? right. <laughs> so, you know, they were sort of saying, look at Israel. Um, it doesn't matter that it's your brain or your subconscious or your imagination that did it. You immerse, the goddess manifests, and it's not just a bit of you, she manifests, and you have to, you know, take that on. So firstly, they challenged the idea that religion couldn't be funny and parodic and irreverent and blasphemous. Secondly, they challenged the idea that you couldn't just make it up and stand up and say, hey, we made it up. And third, they challenged the idea that something that was made up could not ultimately become in some ontological sense real and, and something that you would interact with in a fairly typical kind of theological way. Right, right. Yeah, that's such an interesting case of actually becoming a believer in what one has kind of created, especially with Discordianism, where they themselves wrote the, wrote the original sacred text. You know, one thing that struck me as a, as a question as, re, as I was reading some of your work is um, I know a lot of your work focuses on sci-fi and fantasy. And I'm curious, you know, does the idea of invented religion kind of really, does it rely partially on a, a definition of religion that involves kind of supernatural forces and mythology? Or are there invented religions that are coming from kind of almost, you know, nonfiction books or that have, you know, you know less of that kind of supernatural component to it? That's actually a terrific question. Marcus Davidson, who's a colleague of mine at Leiden University, is particularly interested in this idea of what sort of literature has the literary affordances that you, means that you could use it as a scripture. Yeah. And it does seem that there's a very strong bias amongst the creators of invented religions towards sci-fi and fantasy. And this is largely, I think, because of the theory of fiction writing that was articulated by J.R.R. Tolkien, where he talked about the idea of the creation of a secondary world, as he called, you know, something like Middle Earth, for example, right. as being like an imitation of the creative work of God, and he called it sub-creation. Now, when I was younger, I didn't think explicitly about this sort of stuff. But now, I mean, I hold a naturalistic perspective and I'm a member of a secular religious studies department that doesn't teach divinity or theology and is, there's none of that at my university, which is, you know, entirely secular. And yeah. I would say that, you know, visions of heaven and hell and the afterlife and other worlds that you find in traditional religions, they are in fact just sci-fi and fantasy novels that were written by people so long ago that nobody within the traditions feels like challenging them, particularly because they've acquired some kind of venerability. But the thing about sci-fi and fantasy is the author puts the time into creating this secondary world and they set it up so that it's like recognisable in the sense that there's something that human beings can empathise with, but also they set it up so that it's alien and so that the figures in it appear to have some kind of archetypal significance or to resemble the gods or the heroes of mythology and legend. And there's often supernaturalism in the novels, like either it's some kind of advanced science as described by sci-fi authors, which really isn't science because it, it doesn't actually work in the real world, but it's right. presented in that frame. Right. Or it's actually fantasy novels where there, um, there is magic and there are elves and witches and so on and so forth. And so then you've got instantly this fertile ground where basically if you you import yourself into that realm, you become something other and something additional to the, the human being that you are in our profane reality. So I don't actually know of any invented religion that, for example, takes a fandom like Jane Austen fandom and invent something that fits something that was a real world scenario. I just think it, it would be really hard to do that. There are extreme fandoms where people, you know, dress up in particular types of costumes. Jane Austen's a very good example. You know, there are various places in England that have an entire industry based around her, you know, people in Georgian frocks and going to Jane Austen festivals and reading literary festivals and staying in Georgian houses and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it is an extreme fandom rather than something that has turned into a spirituality or a religion. 
Yeah, and that was actually one of the questions that I was really curious to to ask is, you know, where what what is the line between fandom and you know invented religion? And um, from some of your writing, it seems like maybe like narrative and what how the narrative of the book makes it into the person's individual narrative might connect with somehow. But I'm curious, how do you kind of draw that distinction? Well, I think that it's something that we see in a lot of traditional religion too, like. I have a lot of friends who are Jewish, but they're not religious, but they are Jewish and they do particular things that are specific culturally to Judaism. And they wouldn't, you know, I'm not religious, but I don't do those things because I was never Jewish and, and it's not part of my, my cultural heritage. But I was Catholic at some point and there are certainly aspects of Roman Catholicism that still kind of drift around in the back of my head too. There's a sense in which every religion comes with an attendant culture and if you look at fandom, you could say that really kind of full-on fandom is a midpoint. And at the, at the casual end are the people who just like the cultural product. Hey, I'm a Star Wars fan. Hey, I like Star Trek. I read sci-fi. Well, you know, I might go to the occasional convention, but it doesn't, you know, it's not life-defining. Mm-hmm. And at the very far end are the people who've turned it into a religion or something so close to being a religion that it's kind of hard to tell. Now, the really midpoint is the fandoms, like the Klingon fandoms, for example, where Klingon's being turned into a functional language by linguistics professors. People who are fans learn how to speak it and they communicate with each other in it. The same thing you find amongst Tolkien fans with Elvish. There are, there are people who speak pretty fluent Elvish because there I know Okay, I know there are two different forms of Elvish given in the Tolkien books and, you know, there's all sort of stuff about yeah. which kind you learn, etc. But, you know, these are people where the fandom is largely constitutive of their life and it's the bit that makes their life meaningful. Their closest friends and their most prized and enjoyable activities take place within the frame of this other world that isn't, you know, the world of going to work as a primary school teacher or a barista, you know. So I always think, even though it's a weak concept, and I know it's a weak concept, but it's one that a lot of people in religious studies fall back on, this idea that Paul Tillich articulated that you've got to have an ultimate concern. You know, everybody, for life to be meaningful, you really do, I mean, People find it hard to think about now, well, affluent Western people do. But there is a sense in which, you know, you have to have something, if not to die for, at least to live for. You know, that that it's it's the thing that makes you think that each day is worthwhile. And once you've crossed over that line and it's more important to you that you're a Klingon warrior than that you're a primary school teacher, I think, you know, it's if you like, it's a personal mythos. It's indistinguishable from faith and membership of a religious community. Right. So is it kind of like these people are engaging in the culture of like a Klingon fandom and are, are very immersed in it and are kind of I guess, participating in all these activities, but they haven't, like being part of the Klingon or the Klingon philosophy hasn't kind of permeated their own life kind of philosophy and how they view the world? Is that like they still are functioning as an individual who participates in an, inter- like an entertainment activity as opposed to someone who yeah. is living a life as a Klingon type of person? Is that, is that kind of a distinction? Well, what you really interest, you're interesting there because um, you've also drawn into the story another scholar that a lot of us use, who is Johan Heisinger, the Dutch scholar who wrote a book called Homo Ludens. And he talked about one of the things that, that distinguishes us is the capacity to create these imaginative worlds of play. And there's like, there are like enchanted circles into which we sometimes participate. And you particularly, we step into them. You see it amongst children. You know, it's very easy. Children nowadays have really fancy toys, but even kids who don't have fancy toys can be found playing cowboys and Indians or, you know, bank robbers or whatever, using different things for guns and sticks. And this sort of play that leads to ritual is really interesting because one of the things that Heisinger argues is that the sort of things that we think of as ritual grow out of those enchanted circles in which people do play and that kind of play becomes formalised. So rather than just doing it once, 
children have this idea, let's play the X game again. Let's play the X game again. And then it gets more refined and it gets more definite. And you see this with highly imaginative kids. You know, sometimes they've invented the most astonishingly complicated games mm. that they and their little friends all understand the rules of because they, they've worked out and they look really weird to adults. You know, what, what are they doing? And Heisinger would, would say that religious rituals that people do, you know, which include kind of things that we might think of as superstitious, like, um, you know, protective amulets or, you know, all sorts of things. Like that. Or, for example, uh, rituals for warding off ill luck or, you know, praying to St Anthony because you've lost something. You know, that, that was something that I remember from my childhood because he's supposed to help you find things. I don't know why. You know, that these sorts of rituals get entrenched because whole communities participate in them rather than a knot of six or eight kids. And the community gets invested in the idea that you've got to do it right and for it to be heard and for it to be protective. It has to work in this kind of way. And in the end, you get somebody who's effectively a dungeon master and they get called a priest or a priestess and they know how to do it right and they tell everybody how to do it right and people keep doing it right. And we actually know, for example, in the ancient world, there are some really amazing things that grow out of that. Like in ancient Rome, the ritual life of the, of the city was just so complex that there were rituals that were performed to apologise to the gods for the mistakes that got into the major rituals that had to be performed so that the world didn't fall apart, you know. Right, and right. it's really interesting when you think about the level in, of investment that moves from an individual to a small knot of friends to a local community to ultimately a kind of national body where there's this agreement that we have to do all of these things or else. And some of them don't look very playful. Some of these rituals become very serious, but, of course, lots of rituals involve music and dance, drama and enactment, and, you know, they are kind of fun. Well, and you've also studied kind of secular rituals or secular phenomena through this lens of ritual, right? Like I, I know you've looked at kind of uh, Olympic tourism through the lens of pilgrimage. So I'm curious, you know, when there's not this, when there's not the supernatural component, what do you think kind of, for example, like in a secular community, what keeps the ritual kind of going? What gives it that energy and that justification when you don't have this broader kind of worldview that says this is right or the world's going to end, right? From the gods. Well, the Olympics are a really interesting kind of example because in the ancient world, they most definitely were religious. They were a festival in honour of Zeus Olympios and as well as all of the actual, you know, uh, feats of athletic splendour, there were all of these altars and sacrifices and this kind of encampment where people came from all over Greece and there was a temporary amnesty so enemies didn't fight each other and people could make their way to the site and this was like this this kind of what Foucault calls like a heterotopia, something that was marked off from the rest of the world where a whole lot of special activities took place and people won glory and, and gods bestowed blessings and then they went home, you know. And, in fact, in that sense, we've got another very early religious studies theorist who turns up particularly in the study of pilgrimage and tourism. That's Arnold van Hennep, whose rites of passage idea suggests that you kind of leave your profane life and you enter into this liminal place, which certainly um, the plain of Olympia where the Olympics were held worked like that. And the interesting thing is a lot of people don't realise, but Christians understood that the Olympic Games were, were religious. I mean, when Emperor Theodosius banned them at the end of the fourth century, it was because he was systematically shutting down and banning everything that was pagan. So he banned the Olympics and he shut down Plato's Academy in Athens because he knew these things were not just sport and education. They were actually stuff that venerated the ancient gods and he didn't want any of that. So when you look at the modern Olympics, someone like Pierre de Coubertin, who's largely the you know, architect of the modern Olympics, he had what I would consider to be a kind of global pan-spiritual concept, you know, based on optimization of the human and uh, cooperation between the nations. And these sorts of things are not religious, but they're very close. They embody a kind of charter of values and attitudes. And, you know, 
this is one of the things about Olympic Games is that got banned or boycotted and, you know, that didn't happen at certain points because the idea was that, you know, you were supposed to be in this condition of harmony, which somehow mimicked the ancient Olympics, the amnesty, so that everyone could get to the shrine of Zeus Olympios. So um, the modern Olympics is really interesting. And as far as ritual goes, it's only part of a whole lot of collective rituals, a lot of them based around what we would now think of as sport that are globally and kind of their big business, of course, they involve an awful lot of money, but most people don't like people pointing out that actually religion was kind of in the the business of making colossal amounts of money too. So it's not some kind of terrible vulgar thing that disqualifies you as a religion because you are involved in a business situation. So things like the World Cup for soccer and the Olympics and even some of the other sort of sports, the America's Cup yachting, you know, certainly for Australia and America, that's kind of a huge contest and it has a kind of gladiatorial splendour. Very few people would agree that these were religious in a traditional sense, but most people would kind of accept that they have religion-like qualities or elements that lead to kind of being viewed in that way. And so that's why it's very easy to do work around tourism and pilgrimage because lots of tourists either go to places that are religious, even though they're not religious themselves, but they want to see them or absorb the atmosphere or understand something about them. They're kind of must-see destinations. Or, in fact, they're the kind of people who see travel itself as a stepping out of their profane work life as a barista or primary school teacher into this amazing realm of possibility where they will discover themselves and be transformed and, you know, and some people never come home, you know, they, they kind of, they, they, they get the wanderlust and they stay there, you know. Right, right. right. Um, yeah, actually, I spent a couple of years on the road myself running a, running a travel community, so familiar with some of that and also how... Uh, what that line can be between travel and pilgrimage, because I think it is a difference in intention uh, of how someone makes meaning of their time kind of on the road. I think what you just said about a traveler community is really interesting too, because the old kind of models of pilgrimage, which I think are quite useful, people like Victor Turner, they point out that when you're in the liminal state, you enter into what he called communitas, this kind of Mm. body of you all going through the same experiences, all kind of in the, the transition or the transformation together. And communitas is really interesting. It can become like lifelong and the people will stay with you. But in many cases, it's entirely temporary. You're in this kind of bubble with a group of people having an experience. And then when you return, that, those, that, that is lost. But the, the fact that it's aggregated and then dispersed is enough. You don't need for it to be permanent. Right, it almost allows for a deeper vulnerability, I think, in many cases, as you don't have the history or the same kind of sense of risk of, of divulgence, uh, whatever you might bring up. Well, that's, that's what therapeutic communities are about, you see, the idea that they're not your friends, but you go to your AA meeting or your, your whatever it is, and you, you are a, or your group therapy, and you're able to unburden yourself in a kind of confessional fashion and, and get healed and move forward in this space, as you say, of greater vulnerability. And I think that's another very interesting aspect of modern religions that are very concerned with ritual because ritual also usually en- enables a kind of openness that isn't possible in other circumstances. Right. And, and I think AA in particular and the 12-step communities that have kind of come off of it are particularly interesting because... In many cases, people do end up becoming friends and also maybe tying it back to your unimented religion. You know, it, it was a sacred, Alcoholics Anonymous, the text, which is used as kind of the cornerstone of at least the Alcoholics Anonymous strain of 12-step uh, community, and was written in the 1930s, I believe, uh, like the late 1930s. And so is a, is, is a text which now has become very central in many, many people's lives, which was written by a person who, you know, we have lots of deep biographical information on, kind of similar to like maybe Joseph Smith. And that gets me into, I know we're kind of coming down towards the end of our time, but it kind of taps into another question I had on reading some of your work that I wanted to 
make sure we get a chance to talk about. You mentioned that many of these invented religions end up becoming minor narratives in people's lives versus master narratives. And I was curious if you could talk at all about the distinction there and about that process of how how a text kind of become enters into the narrative of a person and how how it enters into their kind of like meaning making process, if you, if you will. I don't know that I've got any great insights, but yes, I mean one of the things that's really interesting about invented religions is that leaders and prominent members of these groups often say after a long time, you know, after you've not just talked the talk but walked the walk for 40 years, you are that thing. You, it, it, is, it is your reality. And if you look at something like the Church of the Subgenius, founded in 1979, Ivan Stang, who was one of the three founders, he's been doing that, you know, for 41 years. And it is constitutive of his reality and it's had impacts on his life. He said in an interview that he'd lost his first marriage over the church. You know, his wife didn't, couldn't go with it. You know, it seemed too, I don't know, frivolous or stupid. But it, it became so important to him. And I think one of the really interesting ones to look at now that's making a big splash in America is the Satanic Temple. Right. Which, of course, a lot of people get kind of antsy when I say things like that. And they say, oh, yeah, but, you know, things like the Satanic Temple and the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster and Copamism, I mean, they're basically political activist movements. They're not really religion. And one of the big problems is that who knows what is really religion? I mean, people seem to think that they do. But I think it's one of those things where there's a massive disjunct between what scholars think and what, you know, the vox pop in the street thinks, you know, the vox pop in the street thinks that religion is like pornography. Oh, well, look, I know it when I see it. It's uh, it's kind of more complicated than that. So if you look at the satanic temple, obviously they are offering challenges to orthodox religious narratives. They want to break up a dominant narrative that they believe is in fact a no longer really true as the dominant religious position of the community but b restrictive and discriminatory towards people who are religious in other ways and so they want to do things like you know erect statues of baphomet and i say yeah bring it on statues of baphomet everywhere the world would actually be improved And it's probably too early to say whether it's going to have that kind of life transformational effect. But the church's principal spokesman, Lucian Greaves, he has to live this every day. And if he lives it every day, ultimately, it's what he'll become. It'll be the same thing as Ivan Stang. And I mean, this is one of the things that we now know from a point of view of neuroscience, but people knew it. People knew it, you know, as long ago as the New Testament. I mean, St. Paul basically knew that if you acted in a virtuous fashion towards everyone, ultimately you'd become virtuous. If you worked and presented and practised yourself in a certain way, you know, in some senses it's it's also part of our narrative of expertise, the 10,000 hours thing, you know. Why does Roger Federer play such fabulous tennis well I think he was two or possibly four when his dad gave him his first racket and you know by the time you've been doing that you know hours every day you've ceased even really to be aware of how you do it it's it's just neural you know and so I think that people are often attracted to a particular invented religion because it resonates with their personal commitments So if you think about the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, the Dutch legal student, Minka de Vilda, was drawn into that largely because she is a lawyer and she was interested in ideas about discrimination and the way in which minorities and particularly vulnerable minorities like refugee communities, et cetera, were just treated um, entirely uh, oppressively by a a presumed master narrative that maybe isn't. And 
the lawyer that she's done a lot of work with in uh, law, academic really, I suppose, in the Netherlands, Dirk Venema, at one point he published a chapter which I think is just a brilliant analysis of how the whole thing about trying to work out if Pastafarians really believe this stuff is like talking to refugees who say, well, I had to leave, say, an Islamic country because I converted to Christianity. And then they get interrogated about, you know, how much Christian theology they know and how academically do most Christians know their theology. And then the government says, oh, this is a fraud because you don't even know about, you know, this or that and you can't say the Apostles' Creed. And and it's like, this is ridiculous. It's not the standard for Christianity in most churches, right? Well, it's not the standard for anything. And also because... Since you cannot actually conduct a legal, I mean, even though I know there are notions of intention in particular branches of the law, especially criminal law, truly it is extremely difficult to do a legal examination of someone's internal state. The only thing you can actually do is evaluate their statements and what they do. Right. So you leave your country, you enter into a terribly risky situation as a refugee, you state that you have become a Christian. Prima facie. That's what it is, you know. And so the Pastafarians who say things like, well, you know, if I was Muslim, I could have a hijab on my driver's licence or I could wear a yarmulke if I'm Jewish. Well, I'd like to wear my pastor strainer, thank you. I'd like to have a colander on my head. Um, You know, for a lot of people, people say things like, oh, this is just so silly, you know, and it's not the main game. But I actually think in lots of ways it is the main game. It's shaking up people to make them realise that the things that they think are normal and that everybody believes or thinks maybe are normative, but they're certainly not normal. And maybe most people don't believe them anymore. They're just so used to seeing them that they don't even register. Right. And and what I think is interesting about that, and especially about, you know, the Discordians and some of these other groups you've studied is that they start from this very, this place of parody and maybe, poking at points of traditional religion that they disagree with, they think are silly at this point, right? And I think one of the things that's come up a lot in conversations I've had recently with people who are religious and affiliated, but are, you know, interested in this topic for various reasons is the sense of kind of moving from just rejecting maybe the the kind of answers that have been given for generations past and from traditional institutions, but still realizing that these big questions of life, of, you know, what what does it mean to live a good life? How do I answer these big questions? What is my ultimate concern? These still exist. And, um, you know, the question of like, you know, the pasta, the pasta calendar is, is a really interesting kind of political statement, but also what would it mean to kind of in one's clothing, in one's garb, take a symbol that reminds oneself of whatever one holds most important, whether that's, you know, a kind of a fictional religion or in a completely secular setting, um, so maybe some type of value or other. And and then I know we have only one or two minutes left. One last question on this kind of specific topic. I'd be curious, has all of this study into inventive religion and maybe the questions it's, it's brought up around, you know, what religion is and what it is not or how people make meaning, has that changed your personal way of interacting with the world in any way in terms of how you make meaning or what you choose to to stare at, if you will, to stare into? I don't know. I have a lot of difficulty with trying to articulate some things about making meaning. Like I'm very concerned about the kind of very shallow lack of interest in truth and the widespread acceptance of kind of relativism about things that I think are really serious. But I suppose before I even moved into the space of writing anything about these groups, I'd already realised that the way that I operated was largely to build provisional frameworks and operate within those provisional frameworks until I worked out that they didn't work anymore and I had to change the way that I do things. And I think that's part in a way of being a scholar. When you're a humanities academic in Australia, I mean, we don't have coursework in PhDs like you do in America. It's a long, lonely slog. And you have to make it happen, even if you've got a really good supervisor and you're given some kind of help. 
And you're constantly kind of imagining yourself at the next step and how you will move this forward and how it will turn into this or turn into that. And I've always been very future oriented, which I think encourages the building of provisional frameworks and imagining of oneself as a different person in five years or 10 years or, you know, whatever. And, you know, I'm nearly 60 now and it looks life looks a lot different to how it looked when I was 20 or 30. Obviously the horizon seems a lot closer and the, the amount of time for these particular transformations and developments that I might want to engage with seems far, far less. And indeed it is likely far, far less. I think I appreciate kind of anarchic, humorous, poke fun kind of things, partly because I'm really not like that myself. I'm actually a very, very serious person. Mm. And if we were going to do, um, you know, like a classic Freudian analysis, a lot of the people who are involved in things like discordianism and the church of the subgenius are all id. They're appetitive. They, they do things when they want to do things and they don't do things they don't want to do. And I see that as a kind of amazing sort of courage. I'm all super ego. There's a little person in my head that says, you can't have another glass of wine. You've got to work three more hours tonight and you've got to be up at six tomorrow because you've got an interview and a part of marking. And, you know, I lead one of the most regulated and orderly kinds of lives that you could imagine. And I guess I find it quite seductive to think about people who can really let all that stuff go. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It sounds like you've got a lot of self-awareness and, and that, uh, it's I'm old a- enough, I should. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, really um, have enjoyed reading your work and uh, getting the chance to pick your brain a bit and hear a little bit more kind of on some of these concepts. It's been a real pleasure for me. So, so thanks again for showing up. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.